Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Feds is a roundtable discussion that brings together prominent former government officials, journalists, and special guests, and is hosted by LA Times legal columnist and former U.S. attorney Harry Littman. This year, he's been covering everything you need to know about the presidential transition, national security, and the DOJ, with great guests, including Valerie Jarrett, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, members of Congress, Jamie Raskin, Ted Lieu, Joaquin Castro, and journalists like Andrea Mitchell and Peter Baker. Each episode also features a special sidebar explaining a legal topic with celebrities like Robert De Niro, Angelica Houston. It is an informative and entertaining listen, and you can check it out everywhere you find podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. You all have wanted us to do this episode for a while, an episode on the topic of abortion, but honestly, we've been a little hesitant to do that because in case you haven't noticed, we are a couple of men. And look, the theme of this podcast is Ravi and I saying, here's how you should talk about these very complicated uh, and polarizing issues with your friends and your family and your acquaintances and the other parents of your kid's school. Anyway, it's a little bit, you know, beyond the pale, I think, for for a couple of guys to say, and here's how you should handle abortion. So frankly, like we've heard your voicemails about it and, and we've been sort of kicking the can down the road and we apologize because it's not just that you want to win this argument like you do all the other arguments. A lot of you are understandably frustrated that this is a lot of people's single issue. So you will prevail upon them with a lot of the other topics we talk about, and then it comes back to this. So in that vein, we uh, have asked our friends Kate Kelly and Jamia Wilson, who are co-hosts of the WMN podcast Ordinary Equality, which just wrapped its second season, which was all about abortion. There's really no better people to talk to about this. They both come from faith-based backgrounds, so they're used to talking about this issue with close friends and family. And their final episode was all about how to make the argument for reproductive rights. They're also experienced reproductive rights advocates. So Kate and Jamia, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thank you so much for having us on. One of the many reasons why we wanted to talk about this is because we were watching the 2020 election, and frankly, like every election in our lifetime, seeing voters saying, you know what, there's all these things I don't like about Trump or the Republican candidates, but he's quote unquote good on this issue, you know, abortion for voters. Uh, And it was true of George W. Bush. uh, It was true before that. Part of what we want to get to here is why that's the case and, and how we can in good faith have discussions with those voters who kind of see eye to eye with us on so many other issues, but view abortion as murder and won't support a candidate who's not with them on that issue. It's interesting to come at it from the angle of good faith, 
because there are people, you know, I was raised Mormon and I interact with a lot of people who have very sincerely held beliefs. And I think it's important to separate those people from political operatives and others who have intentionally over decades made abortion a very politicized and hot button issue that they use for political gain. And that has been intentional. And that has been, like I said, a long standing plan of the radical right in order to weaponize abortion. And just so to pause on that, your podcast has gone in depth on this. And so Mm -hmm. it's a good time to plug that. What's the name of your podcast again? So our listeners could find it. Ordinary Equality. Uh, And we have an entire episode about the long Southern strategy, which I think is really important to understanding how how this was weaponized and how it didn't used to be a really contested political issue. Even in the 1960s and 1970s, there weren't protesters. It's just not the same. But I think that's a separate question from these people that we know and love and who we talk to every day and who have legitimate beliefs um, and that they really feel strongly about these issues. And so I think there those that's a distinction we can make. But even those people don't understand how abortion has been intentionally weaponized. And they might understand, you know, there are theological implications around it, but they don't understand that they are also being used as a political tool. Um, And so I think helping people understand that uh, is sort of a first step. And really taking them at their word, you know, engaging with people from where they're at and kind of building on common beliefs. Again, I was raised Mormon. And uh, as a Mormon missionary, something that we do is called building on common beliefs. So you'll kind of approach someone and you'll say you'll you'll start, you know, kind of try to start a conversation with them and say, like, OK, like we all believe in God. Right. And they're like, no, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And then you kind of go down to the next level and you're like, OK, well, we have families. Right. You know, whatever it is. And like everyone has a family. So you can connect on that and you can say, like, the thing we believe is, you know, that families are the most important thing and that that we can be with our families together forever in heaven. Uh, that's how Mormons do it. And we're very successful, uh, for better or for worse. But I think uh, there's, there's a lot of common beliefs that underlie reproductive rights, too. And so these common beliefs, I think we can get to, are about freedom and control. Uh, I think if we frame things as freedom versus control, uh, as opposed to using the the word choice, you know, the word choice feels like you're like choosing to eat ice cream. <laughs> um, but if you talk about decisions, like a decision is like where you decide to go to college. A decision is more weighty. So if we use the language about like important decisions and whether or not we want important decisions in our lives to be controlled, I think that's kind of this common common denominator where we can start with people. And we can say, you know, we know that you want people to respect your decisions about parenting. Uh, We know that you want uh, people to expect your decisions around when and how to get pregnant and kind of start with that. Start with family, start with, um, you know, freedom and those kinds of things. And that's that's something that we have in common with folks. I think that that's a great place to start. I think certainly like approaching it as, hey, probably you're not going to be able to launch right into convincing people that they are a tool of, you know, political operatives. Like I think it's, I think probably a lot of people have tried that and it hasn't worked. So I think it's very wise not to. Uh, So now let's, 
let's listen to some voicemails. We'll go through them. And we look forward to you all shepherding us through how to handle these arguments. Hey, guys. The issue that I would like to talk about is abortion, because it seems like with a lot of people, it just comes down to abortion and why they voted for Trump. And I always had the idea that abortions were down under Democratic presidents, but I have no idea if that's actually true or not. And I just feel ill-equipped to talk about it to people who really do care about the issue, and that's what they vote um, solely on. So if we could talk about that, I would be really appreciative. Thanks. So what she alludes to here is an argument that I'm sure I have made in the past uh, and that I, I think a lot of people have gone to in the past as sort of a like a, a default ready argument, which is this argument that, you know, well, abortions tend to go down uh, thanks to democratic policies. Um, but, you know, something has always felt not quite right to me about approaching it that way. So, Jamia, is this a good way to approach it or no? I think the important focus that we should have is to talk about why it's important to support campaigns, candidates, and agendas that provide comprehensive health care to people when they need it in accessible ways. Abortion care is health care. Reproductive rights are related to health care rights. And we are reinforcing a frame that stigmatizes healthcare and that advances misogyny when we separate abortion care from other forms of healthcare and reproductive healthcare specifically. That's the lead thing that I get into when I'm approached with this kind of argument to ask people why they are separating this particular kind of care that happens just like you would approach other forms of care that you would take for your body um, in different ways. And although we might not intentionally mean to reinforce the frame, because before I became more active and more educated about the issue, I too had fallen into trying to play defense um, by using that kind of frame and uh, realized that especially being in this body that I'm in and, um, and uh, being in the body that I was born into, understanding that the kind of reproductive health care that I received at Planned Parenthood um, was tied to all other kinds of health care that I've experienced. That Planned Parenthood, in addition to being a reproductive health care provider for me in my life and my former employer, thank you very much, also helped provide for me frontline screening for other forms of health care that I could not afford uh, during that time in my life. And that was a place where I was able to get life-saving cervical cancer screening and breast screening, uh, having the family history that I have as well. So I just share that to say that it's important for us to think about whose frames we're reinforcing when we use stigmatizing arguments to defend a position that doesn't need defending. Access to healthcare is what we're talking about. I think at that point, you're conceding that it's bad. You know, there isn't a bad or good choice at this point. Um, there are desirable health outcomes. And like Jamia said, we want people to have access to the health care they need. So if you want to talk about giving people access to the health care they need, when we have Democratic leaders, there's access to comprehensive contraception. 
You know, we can get we we have seen, for example, Colorado uh, did a really interesting experiment where they provided long acting reversible contraceptives, IUDs, to anyone for free. And over a period from 2009 to 2017, uh, they saw a 60% decrease in abortions. And so this is a very concrete way to give people the, the access to health care they need. If they have the option and if it's free and available, they will prevent pregnancy because nobody wants to get into a situation where they have to uh, be pregnant if they don't want to be. That's something that you want to prevent if you can. And so I think it's just a question of giving people the access and resources to things that they want, but also not saying abortion is bad or ever conceding that because it's not bad. It's not about the numbers uh, of abortions. You know, 100 abortions is not worse than 10 abortions. (laughs) Hi, my name is Linda. I'm calling from Denver. Thank you so much for the amazing podcast. It has definitely helped keep me sane um, over these past few months. I was calling regarding the caller that you recently played who lived in a conservative area and said that one of the things he gets pushed back on is the abortion issue. And I think another point that can be made regarding that is that abortion is just one part of preserving life. And so life does not stop at childbirth. And I think that often um, the Republican Party focuses so much just simply on not having abortions, but there are a lot of issues once people are born that they don't care about. Um, so maybe pointing out that if you really are kind of a um, right to lifer, what about uh, the death penalty? What about, um, you know, all the other issues that cause people to die pre- prematurely or et cetera. So just wanted to point that out as well, that there's some hypocrisy that maybe could be touched on regarding that the right to life does not end at childbirth. Thanks so much. I, I think this kind of continues with this conversation that we were just having, because if, I, if I'm if i listening correctly and drawing the right lessons from the first part of this discussion, you wouldn't want us to just say, hey, abortion is this immoral act, just like the death penalty is, and therefore, why don't you care about this other immoral act? I, I suspect you will want us to not be drawn into that comparison. Look, we're already using the tools. Yay. <laughs> um, this is exactly why we wanted to do it. Excellent this pupils. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, shaming doesn't change people's minds. It just doesn't. It hasn't ever changed my mind. You know, when people come at you really hard and just say, you know, I told this story about uh, in our podcast, my parents are uh, used to be very religious and were very anti uh, gay. And my brother is gay and and, you know, would do all kinds of terrible things like call his partner his roommate, even though they were married uh, and, you know, things like that that were very harmful. And I was just really strident against them. I would say, like, you're ruining his life. Like, this is terrible. Like, you know, I would just try to shame them and, 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 and was really, really aggressive. And finally, a queer friend of mine was like, maybe just like, don't, you know, like maybe just lay off a little and kind of expect people to come out on the other side and treat them as though they are going to come out on the other side. And so I think the way that I did that with them, I just said, I would be like, you want to go to the pride parade? And they would be like, no, you know what I mean? And I would be like, okay, cool. Next time, you know, like I would just, 
I would just keep giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come out on the other side with me. And eventually they did. Like eventually that worked. Um, You know, they, my mom made a quilt for my brother and his husband and, you know, all kinds of other Mormony ways of supporting them in the end. And and they consider themselves to be allies now, but sort of this, this harsh trying to trap them or trying to, trying to get them on this hypocrisy argument, like you, you know, you support the death penalty, da, 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 da. like that doesn't work. And at the end of the day, you also can't shame the shameless. So uh, if people don't feel shame around this issue, that's not going to work. So I, I, I understand the impulse to want people to be consistent. And I also want people to be very consistent, but I don't want them to be consistently against our rights. So even if they also oppose all these other things, like, I don't care. I don't I don't want you to be against my rights either way. <laughs> so it doesn't help me that you're consistent. But I do think that that's one facet of reproductive justice and the framework uh, that we talk about on our podcast is that the reproductive justice framework isn't just about abortion. It is about whether or not you can have children and to support the children that you do have. And so I think it also helps people understand we don't we don't just want everyone to have abortions. We want people to be able to control their lives. We want people to have support if they want to have kids and to support those kids to live an an incredible life and have education and be happy and free. And that's something that we all want. Um, So I think that we can kind of use that use that question or use that pivot to open things up and say, there are things that we all want in this life. And and those are values that we share. Today's episode of Majority 54 is brought to you by BetterHelp. If something is interfering with your happiness or achieving your goals, online counseling could be the right solution for you. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with a licensed professional therapist. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. And because it's online, you're not limited to experts in your area. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp has counselors who specialize in anything you may want to talk about. Depression, anger, relationships, self-esteem, anxiety, whatever it may be. Everything you share is always confidential. And we want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com m54. A lot of you have been watching the news and saw that there's a huge data breach involving Facebook this week. And the reason why this is the case is because every website you use, for the most part, it takes data from you and, and you don't have much of a say over where that data goes. And there are hundreds of data brokers out there who sold businesses to buy and sell your data. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted uh, through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. So every time I turn on ExpressVPN, it makes it difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. Uh, and the best part of this is just how easy ExpressVPN is to use. Like it's often running in the background of my computer. And I don't even notice it. Um, and no matter what device you're on, whether it's a phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if like us, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com majority 54 and get three extra months for free. 
That's expressvpn.com slash majority54. Go to expressvpn.com slash majority54 to learn more. Hey, Majority 54. This is Todd from Randolph County in Northeast Arkansas. I am a Trump Biden voter. Uh, the issue that keeps coming up in my circles, on my Facebook pages, in my friends and family is the fear of increased abortions underneath Joe Biden, with second issue kind of being gun rights, and then minor a minor third of socialized medicine. So how do we respond to some of this, specifically the abortion fear? Because as a person of uh, science and of faith, and speaks a lot of, that speaks to a lot of people in my community, there's a real there's a real fear of it. And the Republicans used to being this party of responsibility, many people in my area feel that when people engage in acts that have consequences, um, they, people should take responsibility for them and not sweep them under the rug or, in some cases, vacuum them um, under the rug. So if y'all can respond to that, that'd be fantastic to um, hear some nuance and not just talking points. All right. So Todd comes at this from a whole other angle, which is great. I mean, I, I, I think it's really interesting when, uh, you know, Trump Biden voters call, cause that's like, it's like, you just want to gather them together and have a focus group right away. But he comes at it with a few different things that he mentioned there. We'll focus on him bringing up abortion and he approaches it in two ways. I think we should get into one. He like sort of tees up. It's very tempting to go right at the idea of, oh, well, if you're worried about an increase, oh, don't worry, you know, like falling right back into that argument that, that we already talked about that you all have sort of warned us off of. But then the other thing is he's framing it as a, a personal responsibility issue, uh, which I think is a good place to pick up. So help Ravi and I and Todd understand how to respond to that. I think that often that's a veiled uh, way of talking about what a woman's responsibility is and people of marginalized genders responsibilities are that it's not about a conversation of equal responsibility. In jest, I've had many a conversation with men who I'm friends with when they've talked about that. And I'll say, oh, so you're going to get a vasectomy tomorrow so you can take personal responsibility to make sure that you never get anyone pregnant and unintentionally. And even though it's snarky, it usually gets the point across um, to kind of think about who they were thinking about when they talked about who has to take personal responsibility when faced with this situation. I think depending on who the conversation is, whether it's a potential partner or if it's, you know, a loved one, um, it's really important to talk about, you know, what are you really saying when you talk about personal responsibility? Who are you really blaming? And do you really believe that when you're not talking about this subject? And I think for most good-hearted, good-faith people that I've met, even people who are on the opposite side of me on this issue, most people do want to see that each of us are cared for, have security, have support and accessibility to the care we need. And I think it's really about taking it away from this idea that it's anyone's fault and really getting to the root of why we believe that in the first place. Uh, last thing I'll say is I remember having a really painful conversation with an ex of mine. A big part of that was uh, came from 
him having this ultimate belief that somehow if a person and a woman specifically were to get pregnant, um, it was because she didn't have the right values or she didn't have, um, she didn't have the willpower to stop it from happening. And it was the kind of language I would just hear him speaking about when he would speak about women in his orbit who would have unintended pregnancies or friends of his who would have different experiences or experiences or with sexually transmitted diseases and things like that. Um, and it really came down to me finally deciding to speak up and saying, wow, you know, I just noticed that the way in which you place judgment when you talk about personal responsibilities has a gendered tinge. And can we talk about maybe what experiences you had in life and in your upbringing that led you to believe that women have more responsibility over these things. And of course the reaction was one of defensiveness at first, but it really led to some good conversations about how he did come to that. And like most of us, it came through childhood. So I just share that because I think that a lot of times the answer is the question and the questions are the answer to really start asking people who trigger us with those kinds of things. You know, when I heard Todd, I felt all of the stuff coming up for me. And I thought, okay, but I really want to get curious. You know, I want to say, Todd, uh, when you were young, what were the messages you heard about whose responsibility it was to initiate conversations about sexuality in a partnership, whose responsibility it is to protect against this kind of thing? And then when they answer, what do you do next? I mean, do you then say, okay, well, you know, here's what I heard or I also felt that way and and here's how I came to where I am. Like, what do you do after they answer? I mean, for me, um, it's a question of providing an alternate view. So they can answer, this is what I learned at church or this is how I felt or this is how I was raised. Um, but a lot of people haven't heard the opposite. Um, so, you know, as a queer woman, I can say, you know, men ejaculating causes 100% of unintended pregnancies, period. I can have orgasms with my partner all day long, every day, 365 days a year, and we don't get pregnant. And so when, when you think... Thank you, by the way, for accepting personal responsibility. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was going to say that's a lot of that's a lot of days too. Good for you. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's go gay, Jealous. go gay, everyone, go gay. But it's important to understand that like a woman's orgasm literally has nothing to do with pregnancy or fertility. The same is not true of men. And so when we're talking about personal responsibility, I think it's important to to see it from a totally different perspective and understand who is actually really responsible in a heterosexual relationship for the unintended pregnancy. It's men. If men take responsibility and use condoms 100% of the time, then this wouldn't even be a question. And why? Why don't men use condoms? It, it's a great point, like, particularly for a uh... For a guy talking to another guy, like, I think particularly the point about, look, there, there's an unequal relationship of like whether there, whether somebody has a good time for sure and whether that, whether that results in a baby. Like, I, I don't know. I think that's an interesting way to talk about it, like as a guy to talk about it with another guy to, to make the point about personal responsibility. But what, answer that question. Why? Oh, sorry. Why, sorry. why do men... <laughs> I didn't know. I thought it was rhetorical. I'm sorry. It is rhetorical. But also, what is the answer? Why do men not use condoms? I'm actually thinking about this because I feel like I'm more... 
I'm more in the dating world than Jason is. I think Jason hasn't been in the dating world well, like since he was like 11 more. years old. Uh, yeah. So I feel like I could probably best answer this question. I'm I'm trying to think about what I had. I had a thought which was not a helpful one for our cause, but I guess I'll just air it and we can kind of workshop it. Which is, I think that in the environment we have where men don't want to take responsibility knowing that there are options available to women that are going to ensure that it doesn't go to their doorstep is something that I think is an issue, right? Like, hey, hey, she'll take care of it and I don't have to deal with it, right? Is like a cultural problem that we have. And I think, but that's not the argument he's making. He's not saying, hey, I don't want abortion because men aren't going to take responsibility over their decisions because of the availability of abortion. So that's, that's why I say it's not helpful. I think it's a dynamic, but that's like a dynamic of, like among many others. I'll answer it. I mean, and it goes right to your point. I don't like the way that feels. That's what, you know, that's what guys say all the time, right? Like, go ahead, because I'd like the audience to know that you reacted in a way that said right answer rather than, I mean, it's a, it's an audio format because otherwise it sounds to them like I'm just hanging ding, out ding, here. Ding, just, ding, 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 infinitesimally more pleasurable for me to do the thing that does not take personal responsibility. So a man in this situation is literally asking a woman to risk her life, her health, her social status, her relationships, potentially her career, so that they can experience a few, let's be generous, minutes (laughs) of slightly increased pleasure. (laughs) I'm now like really looking forward to the next guy that makes this art because I really want to have this conversation, no, it, it, you know, like it's eye opening, honestly, like it, you're right. Like the, the, the onus is it, like, nobody thinks about this personal responsibility front from the guy's perspective. I, I never hear it that way. You're right. Well, because the way it usually ends up, like if you have the personal responsibility for the man argument, it instantly goes to a place of, well, should the law reflect that? Should the law say that the man has to automatically do this or that? And then sometimes it goes the other direction, which is if they have a responsibility, should they have a some rights that are added in to dictate what the woman, you know what I mean? Like, But this is a totally different and more productive direction. We need to step back and we need to say, do you actually care about women? Because you're saying that you care about women and that you care about people. And if you care about women and if you care about people, and even if you think abortion is murder, you are going to do everything you can to prevent it. And the easiest way to prevent abortion is get every single adult male of vasectomy. Vasectomies are reversible. Vasectomies are the most cost-effective. You know, vasectomies are the way, uh, and Planned Parenthood provides them. Uh, You really only feel soreness within the next 24 hours. It's about as invasive as an exam that a woman would require to get any form of birth control, so it is no more invasive. 
But then I think that really gets to the idea. People will say, well, like, that's a crazy idea. We would never do that for a public health issue. Well, think about the percentage of men that are circumcised in this country. A huge percent of men are circumcised in this country, starting at birth. And this is not reversible. Circumcision is not reversible. And so it's actually not that wild of an idea to think about if you actually cared about eliminating abortion, what you would do is get every man in this country a vasectomy. You don't care about that. What you actually care about is controlling women and our bodies and our freedom. And so when you take it to that logical conclusion and you say 100% of unintended pregnancies are irresponsible ejaculations and for slightly more pleasure, and if you don't care about that, then then what you care about is controlling women. And that's a separate conversation. You know, I remember once having a conversation with a guy about this, because I think that there's not a lot of talk about pleasure. And there's been this sort of when we could talk about the US history around Puritanism and how this country came to be, and the holdovers of that in terms of how we talk about sexuality in a really retrograde way. Sex is also about pleasure fancy that. And so we don't have that conversation as much as we need to have it, but yet men feel perfectly comfortable talking about how the barrier methods are a barrier to their pleasure, right? So when it's about women's pleasure and when it's about the bodies of non-binary people and their pleasure, that's when we often want to legislate it. That's when we often want to say, oh, it's not convenient for people to be able to have pleasure and to have control over their reproduction. So I want to talk about that too. I want to talk about um, whose pleasure is valued more and overvalued. I actually want to use the word overvalued and whose pleasure is undervalued and not considered because I want to live in a world where all of us are getting off free. And I think that that is really important. I want to live in a happy world where everybody's getting what they need safely and with consent. My last point is just a conversation that I once had with someone who was saying that to me about, you know, why they didn't want to wear condoms. And I said, oh, well, because you can pounce and then you can bounce. And if that is not the situation I'm in, the minute that I got my period at an early age, I was told and by men in my family, you can get yourself in trouble. Boys do not have that same conversation. They are not told that they have to assume personal responsibility to keep from getting in trouble, and I'm air quoting right now, um, when they hit puberty. So I also just want to share that, that there's so much of this that is ingrained in us at a young age, and we need to think about how we're talking to the next generation about personal responsibility too, and about pleasure. I also just think people don't understand what abortion is. Uh, 90% of abortions take place before 12 weeks. You can do medication abortion up to uh, 10 weeks. So the vast majority of abortions in this country is literally just women taking two pills. You go to the doctor. Unfortunately, in most places, you actually have to be physically present. You take the pills and that's it. There's no, It's not invasive. There's no, uh, it's not a surgery. It's, it's a very quick, safe procedure. And so I think when we think about personal responsibility, why isn't 
abortion personal responsibility. You're taking responsibility for not having a child that you can't care for, don't want to care for, and uh, cannot assume responsibility for. I think I can't think of anything more responsible than choosing not to parent if you're not ready and able. If you could see and taste this bacon from Moinkbox.com, you would order it right now. It's not just the bacon. Like, the bacon was extraordinary. It's very thick-cut bacon. It's good bacon. But also the chicken we had. We had uh, my sister-in-law and her fiancé over, and Diana prepared a, a whole chicken that came from Moink, and it was fantastic. We talked about it a lot over dinner, so it's legit. So Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com m54 right now, and listeners to this show get free ground beef for a year. <laughs> Wow. That's incredible. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box dot com slash M54. That's moinkbox.com slash M54. I've been a subscriber to The Economist for many years now, and every time I read it, I feel a million times smarter, almost like I'm getting my own presidential daily briefing. What's really cool is that The Economist now has podcasts, including Checks and Balance, which is a podcast from The Economist that I think our listeners are really going to like. Yeah, what I love about this podcast is that it's very much like The Economist. It's like, yeah, look, you can get the top level stuff on cable news or you can get it in the newspaper. We're going to go deeper. So when you look at some of the things they've gotten into, like, is the Supreme Court too political? Why is Florida key to national politics? What's actually preventing a faster and fairer vaccine rollout? Like, they're going to take you to that next level. There's so much depth in it. And this podcast is the same way. Each week, John Perdoe, The Economist U.S. editor, tackles a new topic that's shaping American politics and digs into the country's complex history to explain what's actually going on today. And he's joined by experts and economist correspondents from around the U.S. to talk through the ideas and data influencing the direction this country is headed. So for a fair-minded and global perspective on democracy in America, subscribe to The Economist's Checks and Balance podcast now. That's Checks and Balance from The Economist. Subscribe and listen for free on Acast, your podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, so to bring it full circle to where we started, you know, we started by talking about the voters and the people in our lives who believe fundamentally that abortion is murder. And so it's wrapped up in the personal responsibility arguments. It's wrapped up in the politics and all that. But there are definitely people out there who I certainly know quite a few of them who just straight up believe this is murder. And whether, no matter how they got there, I can't seem to to get them, nor do I even know whether it's my role to get them off of that belief. You know, it's like, it's complicated, right? Like what I want to do is 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 broaden their broaden the way they think about their politics around this issue, right? So it's not it's not the single motivating factor, but a couple of things in this conversation have got me thinking, you know, one is that we talked about framing it as a decision. We talked about uh, talking about the, the broader responsibility we have as a society to provide access to medical care. We talked about the need to not 
fall into a frame of talking about abortion as bad and like increased abortions is bad and decreases is good. But when I put that all together in, in a world where somebody thinks that's murder, they do think increased abortions are bad. They don't think it's good. They, they think a decision to have an abortion is evil in the end because they think it's murder. So I kind of come back to some of the tools that we've given and I'm like that one person, I'm still not sure I have what I need yet to get that, that person. So I'd love some guidance on just like the, the, the person who just genuinely believes this no matter how they got there and how to get them off of that, you know? Can I add to that question? Like it's sort of a wrinkle to it, which is, is there a person who's beyond convincing on this? Is, is there, is there like a, a thing you hear where you go, okay, move to the next person. Cause we, you know, sometimes on the show, like there are things people say where I'll say like, okay, if they say that, like move to the next person, is this one of those things? I don't know. I think it's not just about this issue. There's a reason why abortion has been politicized in this country in a way that it hasn't been in most other countries um, around the world who share our democratic framework, for example, and other republics. Um, I think that has to do with our history and it has to do with how America came to be, but it also had to do with the strategic weaponization of this issue as a hot button wedge issue. And it's one that very rarely impacts the lives of people who aren't directly affected by it. And yet it can evoke so much fear and so much intensity of emotion around it. So a lot of times for me, the conversation with the people who I do think can be moved, and I, do, I think there are some who can't, um, will be around the fact that statistically it is a truism that no matter what they think about it, whether it's legal or not, abortions will still happen. And the only thing they can personally do is to not have one, um, which is also their right if they don't believe in them. But how are other progressive policies that are set in opposition um, to this issue as well, um, that they may not be supporting or advancing that could help their lives, going to help them and their family get what they need. And so that is a conversation I've had with friends and family who have said, well, this is just the issue, but I will say whether or not you vote for this, they will still be happening no matter what you think about it. But are you willing to sacrifice your need for healthcare, your need for economic justice, your need for better schools for your kids. Um, and so, and not and not any way to stigmatize abortion as an issue, but that's an important question that I like to have with people to really talk to them about the history of abortion and also the uh, commonplace nature of them, whether or not it's legal um, and how this happens around the world. And a lot of people will move to that or at least have a different understanding around it. And for those who just aren't gonna get on our page, um, I think the important thing for me is to think about them with a harm reduction strategy. So often I will have conversations with people like that about the implications of ballot initiatives or other policies on other issues that they do care about as it relates to privacy and personal freedoms. And that is where you can get some movement because often those are people who vote on individualistic terms anyway. And although that's not my particular vision or approach, you can sometimes move those people because then you'll say, okay, well, if you support this, then this is what it does to speech. 
This is what it does to privacy. This is what it does to civil liberty. And now what do you think about that? So why don't we end with a short discussion about where we are in this country from a policy and legal perspective? Uh, it comes in a context in which there are many state laws in uh, Republican states in particular to roll back, roll back women's reproductive freedom. And so, you know, give us a primer of just where we are and what can we expect in the months ahead on these issues? You know, where we are <laughs> is the result of a long standing very, very coordinated attack on access to reproductive health care that started essentially after Roe versus Wade and has continued to this day. Really what happens are the worst laws against abortion are state by state. Those are called trap laws, so they're targeted restrictions on abortion providers. They really have decided over time to go after the providers uh, instead of the people who access abortion care because pregnant people are more sympathetic to the public, uh, although that also happens. And so in many states at this point, there are, is only one provider uh, for abortion care. That means you might live hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from an abortion uh, abortion provider that you can access or you can afford. Uh, there are all these kinds of restrictions, including time limits, and uh, you have to have certain procedures. You have to have information told to you by your doctor that is not true. Um, it's a very confusing and cumbersome process. And that's where we're at. Many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people in this country do not have real access to abortion care today. Although it is still legal in all 50 states and that Roe versus Wade has not been overturned. So I think we have to just understand that the, the long game for them isn't just to restrict access. The long game for people who oppose abortion is to completely ban it and get a constitutional amendment saying that abortion is no longer no longer a constitutional right and is banned. That is that that nothing less will suffice for them. And so we're not there, but we have to be vigilant and we have to understand that that is where they are headed. And thank you for saying that because I just, every time I hear it, and you know, although I'm very deeply aware of this, when I think about the fact that there's a good amount of people who support the idea of creating a constitutional amendment to legislate against the body of a significant group of people, that is the only thing that that kind of thing could only happen in the context of marginalized bodies, bodies of non-binary people, women, or people of color. And so I think it's also very important to point that out to people to say, where have you seen such a significant portion of people agree with legislating the oppression and subjugation of a body and wanting to encode it into the law and amend the constitution that they always say they never want to change. So that right there, I think is the thing that makes me feel so passionate about why we have to be real and be vigilant and steadfast in this fight because they, like you said, want to encode this. They want to encode this and they would only encode this in terms of controlling the reproduction of people who they want to keep in a position of less power. Of this whole episode, the thing um, that has stuck with me more than anything, uh, and there's been a lot of really great stuff, is the vasectomy thing. I got to be honest. It's, it's the thing that's, 
And no, no, yeah, I, did, I wonder not even, why I, don't even, I wonder why that stuck with you, Jason. I, well, maybe that maybe that is. It's not even like what I mean is like. I mean, I was born in 1981, so my entire life, all of our entire lives, you just take for granted the idea that this is an issue in the public square, that that abortion is an issue that people debate about, and that that the idea of a law, a constitutional amendment, whatever, that says that's not allowed, like a woman cannot have an abortion, you know, sometimes you take for granted the idea that that's fucking nuts. And so the reason that the vasectomy thing stuck with me so much is like, Kate, when you said it, you said, now, when I say that, the idea of mandating that every man has to have a vasectomy, and the implicit thing I understand is every man has to have a vasectomy that is reversible, and at the point at which they are then, you know, ready to reproduce and have made that decision with a partner, they can undo that and then redo it again, whatever, right? I get that. And then you said, now, obviously, when you hear that, that sounds crazy, and it does. But now that I've heard it, I realize that it does not sound more crazy in any way. In fact, it sounds actually exactly equally crazy to the idea of a law that uh, outlaws access to abortion for women. It, they, it, to me, they are now on entirely equal ground, which is really changes. It doesn't you know, change my view on the issue, but it really changes my context for the entire conversation. I'm now going to become a pro-vasectomy <laughs> activist. Yeah. Uh, want to thank you for this amazing conversation. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, you've given us so much to think about, and um, we're really grateful for you giving us a, a little piece of your week. Uh, we usually end with a section we call grab an oar, which is just pointing people in the direction of where they can take action. I think the first thing for grab an oar is we'll tell people that they can listen to Ordinary Equality on the Wonder Media Network for a much deeper dive into this. Uh, so I, I would I would encourage people to do that, to become even more informed and, and capable of having this conversation. But in addition to that, uh, would would either of the two of you or both of you like to recommend some things that people can do uh, to, to be a part of, of this fight? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things that people don't know is the vast majority of abortion uh, takes place actually not at Planned Parenthood, but at not at Planned Parenthood, but at independent clinics. And one of the things that people can do is support the National Abortion Federation. And there's a lots of lots of different organizations where you can find information about independent clinics. And especially in places where abortion is most restricted, it's probably indie clinics that are providing that service. So I think that's another thing that folks can check out. Where, where do people in my state actually get access to abortion and how do they get money for it and how do we how do we support these independent providers in those places so that would be my first recommendation you know one of the things i thought about when we were talking to is i thought about the people who say you know they personally have an issue with it um but you know they want to know what they can do and i was thinking about how as a black woman in this country having an abortion uh is safer statistically then uh, my odds around uh, the disparities related to black maternal health justice. And that's because of the stratification of care and racial injustice in our healthcare systems. So 
we're dying at alarming rates. And so I often want to direct people who say, well, you know, I, I still don't know where I feel on this issue. And if you want to do something, then you should do something to help with birth justice um, as well on the full scale of reproductive justice. So um, I would say to support organizations like Black Mamas Matter Alliance and also to support the Groundswell Fund. Uh, the Groundswell Fund strengthens U.S. movements around reproductive and social justice, and they resource intersectional grassroots organizing and center the leadership of women of color, specifically Black women, Indigenous, and transgender folks. And the Groundswell Fund does grant making and capacity building and funder organizing and has um, a C4 and a C3. So I'm a former board member of Groundswell and think that they do amazing work for birth justice and all spectrum scale of the reproductive justice work and think that if you want to do something, it's an important organization to support. So this has been a great episode uh, where I think people have learned a lot. I would just like to say, I've never done this at the end of an episode, but I would like to say to the poor guy whose job it is to record every episode of this show at the Republican National Committee, who, because those folks think that I may still, uh, you know, be like just about to run for office, I've made it clear that I'm not. I would just like that guy to know that he could probably take the transcript of this where I talk about mandatory vasectomies down the hall and no longer have to listen to this show that probably really bothers him and makes him mad. So he may be the biggest winner of this episode. More time actually. with family so. for him. And if he would like to get a vasectomy, yeah, yeah. we can direct him to where he needs to go. Actually, Maybe this I'll, is a winning platform. Jamia, I'll, 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 we could add this to the grab and or. I'll pay for a vasectomy for everybody at <laughs> yeah. the RNC. Uh, yes! <laughs> Now we've got a platform we can believe in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this this has gone downhill, and it's my fault. I apologize. All right. Here we go. Okay. Uh, for, for everybody listening, um, we obviously used a lot of great voicemails uh, on this episode, and uh, we would encourage you to uh, leave us a voicemail that we might use in the next episode. It's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You know, why don't you all tell these folks where they can find you on social media? Yeah, the best place to find me on social media is Kate underscore Kelly underscore ESQ on Twitter and lots and lots and lots of talk about equality and abortion. You can find me at Jamia, J-A-M-I-A-W at Twitter and my website, jamiawilson.org. All right. Uh, I'm at Jason Cantor on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music's provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.